sometimes about the end of the second day. Can you hear okay? Is that coming through okay? Up it a little bit? Yeah. Anyway, so sometimes about the end of the second day on a metta retreat, once in a while people will ask us, remind me again how this is being kind to myself. (laughs) Because certainly you're a rare person if you haven't discovered by this time that many, many things arise in our mind and body. And many, many of them are not metta. And even if you've done uh, loving-kindness retreats before, we kind of can tend to forget. But if you haven't, it would really be normal not to be expecting such a variation. And I know how much of the stuff that comes up is difficult, painful, pain in the body, really deep emotional pain sometimes, some that's not so deep but that's really quite painful Nevertheless, just basic aversion or sleepiness or restlessness. So I just want to reiterate that actually we don't recognize it in the middle of the retreat. But it really is an act of deepest kindness, of ultimate kindness to ourselves to be willing to practice in this way. Because with each each phrase that you plant that seed, that you drop the phrase into your heart, that you repeat it, each phrase is a moment of breaking down our dream, our illusion that we live in, of separation, of isolation, of neediness, of loneliness. And each time that we make that intention to cultivate loving kindness by saying the phrase, we are counteracting the habits of our mind, the habits of our heart that are keeping us confused and in delusion, that are keeping us away from our true home. St. Augustine said once, the reason why humans behave as they do is because they are not living in their true home. The context of the heart of connectedness that manifests as metta, as compassion. That's not some weird, altered state we have to create. That is our true home. And that we're not living there is sort of what Sharon was uh, alluding to the other night. You know, we think greed and aversion and restlessness are really who lives here, you know. And we don't recognize that that's not our true home. And the heart of kindness, the heart of non-judging, the heart of compassion really is our true home. So what we're doing really is an ultimate kindness. However, we don't get the instant results that... I don't know what it is. I think it's so deeply inbred in us in this... Western culture, that even when we think we're being patient and taking the long view, we're not even close. 
you know. The long view is three months. That's the long view, you know. <laughs> you know let's read the Buddha. He's talking about eons and eons and eons. I mean, I'm not saying that's encouraging. I'm just trying to give a comparison for what could be the long view. Three months isn't it. Seven days isn't it. That's not to be discouraging. That's so that we don't have completely unrealistic expectations. Think that because anger is coming up in my mind on the third day, I've, I'm wasting my time here. I might as well go home. But, but that these difficult states of mind and pain in the body come up, that's normal. It's part of the practice. It's not a mistake. What the one of the ways you could um, look at the formal practice of metta as we're doing it here is that uh, part of what we discover is a moment-to-moment training in seeing how we create with our mind the dream, the illusion of separation, of alienation, of suffering. It's not that this sense of, of being separate, this sense of loneliness, this sense of neediness is some big thing, you know, that's in us, that's hanging there, that we have to chip away at. It's only this moment. And the sense of, of separation, the sense of distance, our sense of suffer, suffering, of fear, of neediness, is created in the moment by how the mind and heart responds or reacts to whatever particular experience is arising. Now, to me, thinking of my experience or looking at it in this moment-to-moment level is enormously freeing because it takes a huge load off that I somehow have to undo the whole last 49 years of my life and make sure I never in the future, for however long, make a mistake again, both of which is obviously impossible. I can at least pay attention to this moment Sometimes. Sometimes. But that at least seems within the range of the doable, you know, to pay attention to how the mind and heart is reacting in this moment to whatever's arising. Nisargadatta Maharaj, one of my favorite quotations, said, The obstacles to the clear perception of one's true being are desire for pleasure and fear of pain. Sound familiar? It's not like the desire for pleasure and fear of pain. Guess what? Desire and ill will, right? Greed and aversion, the first two of the five hindrances. It's not like that they're evil. But when we don't recognize those habits, when those habits basically run the show, run our life, even though we think that desiring pleasure and fear and pain is what's bringing us happiness, those tendencies are actually what's perpetuating, moment to moment, our sense of isolation, of neediness. And so one of the reasons that at times, the metta practice and vipassana practice too, because they're, they're working on the, from different angles on the same thing, but one of the reasons that the metta practice is sometimes quite uncomfortable is because we're counteracting very deep habits. And as you know, breaking a habit doesn't feel good a lot of the time, even though we know once the habit's gone or it's a lot less, we're a lot happier. But in the meantime, the habit's what's comfortable. The habit's where our mind naturally goes. 
So it's natural that as we deepen in this practice here, I know you might not feel like you've deepened at all, but don't go there. That's a completely irrelevant judgment that the mind makes based on some made-up idea. You are deepening. You're still here. You're still doing it. It's deepening. You say, I'm not deepening because more aversion, more greed is coming up. No, that's proof that it's deepening. Because as we continue with strengthening the intention of the loving-kindness, each time we say the phrase, it's as if the obstacles get highlighted. And we, I know I kind of naively thought they just would vanish in the background, you know, but they get highlighted. One of my teachers used to say that as the light of awareness shines, all the snakes come up out of their pits. <laughs> <laughs> and there are moments when that really feels like... There's plenty of moments when it's not, too. Also the goodness, the, the connectedness, the sense of non-judging. It's important to notice those moments, too. For neither of them do you need to take credit, which makes it a whole lot easier. (laughs) You only have to notice them. So, it's natural that they get highlighted. One one model, just to talk about some of the uh, difficult states that come up, is the five hindrances, which I know if you've done any meditation in this style before you're quite um, familiar with. In metta practice, sometimes we forget to notice them. They come up in just the same way, with just as much strength as they do in Vipassana practice. They might manifest in a slightly different way, and I'll talk about that in, in some, sometimes. And also because the practice is a little different, we don't always notice them as soon <laughs> if soon is the appropriate word, but we don't always notice them as soon as we might in Vipassana. So the challenge of our hearts, really, how to meet these, any difficult emotional, physical states in the metta practice is not to think, well, I can't do metta because they're here or these are obstacles. The, the key is simply the recognition, for example, of desire, the first hindrance, the recognition of it, rather than uh, being driven by it, and then how we meet it with our attention. You know, that's how the metta continues in the recognition and the meeting what's arising with clear, non-judging attention. That's really metta. I think Sharon said something like that last night, that really connected, non-judging attention is an aspect of metta. So when you're feeling really sleepy or really aversive to yourself or something that's happening or filled with doubt. Recognizing it, of course, first is essential. And then notice what's the habit of how your awareness greets that. One way is um, what Sharon said last night, how we think, oh, great, come in, you live here, settle down. You know? Suzuki Roshi said once... Um, He said, in Zazen, leave your front door and your back door open. Let the thoughts come and go. Just don't serve them tea. (laughs) So that's one way we greet them. Oh, sure, it's your house. It's your home. Another way is the opposite, which in my mind is personified 
by uh, an old blind Swami that I met in India a few years ago. Uh, he was, I was staying in a small ashram, which was just rooms built around a kind of a concrete courtyard. And this was a really old Swami, you know, kind of a renunciate dressed in orange, a little crazy, that they had taken in off the street and were letting him sleep on a bed in that courtyard. And when we, we came there in the afternoon, he was just lying there, seeming out of it. And in the middle of the night, like two in the morning, the whole place just started reverberating with these huge banging sounds that just rattled the place like whack, whack. And it would go on for 10 or 15 minutes. You'd bounce awake and then it would stop and you'd fall back asleep and another couple hours it would start again. And the next day at some point I came walking back and the Swami was, was actually up and I saw that he was the one making those sounds. He had this huge, it was like a big piece of rope that he'd made himself out of old little pieces of cloth and he'd woven it together. So it was very thick and frayed at the end. And he would just be lying there out of it and suddenly he'd leap up and grab this rope and just start whacking the floor with all his strength. Whack, whack. And he'd just go at it for five or ten minutes and then he'd lie back down again. And... uh, after a couple of days, I asked one of the, one of the young guys who lives there, uh, what's he doing? And he said, well, you know, he's a little, he said, he says when he's meditating, evil spirits come and disturb his meditation. So he's getting rid of them. <laughs> so that's the second option that I also don't recommend. <laughs> But look and see. We often we engage in either whacking the unpleasant visitor <laughs> or whacking ourselves for having the unpleasant visitor, right? Not metta. Definitely not metta. So I'll just talk a bit about these five hindrances in the, in the context of the metta retreat. Um, recognition is very important. So the first two, of course, desire or sense desire and aversion, ill will, are the first two of the hindrances, but, and they are, of course, much larger than just hindrances. They're really the key to how we keep ourselves suffering and in delusion. But in metta, these two uh, states of mind, states of heart, have a very specific relationship to the mental state or state of mind of metta. Desire uh, clinging is called the near enemy of metta. And ill will, aversion, fear is called the far enemy. So what does that mean? Near enemy means it's a state of mind of heart that can fool us. It can look like metta. And we can actually uh, think that we are cultivating metta or feeling metta, and we're actually in wanting. And just, just logically hearing that, we think, but they're not the same at all. It's really quite interesting how that happens. If you look at it, if you look at the two states, they're almost opposites of each other. Because if you look at desire, look at it in your experience when you start wanting something, when you have this, whether it's just some little thing, you know, you want the bell to ring. You want something special for tea. Or it's a huge thing. You know, you want a particular relationship. You want something major to happen in your life. 
But looking with your attention at the state of wanting itself, I mean, the essence of desire is separation, right? The sense of desire is that I am somehow separate from whatever it is. And there's a sense of neediness for completion, for wholeness, for collectedness. This something is lacking and needs to be acquired or needs to be held on to. And it's actually the energy of the craving or the desire itself that creates and sustains this sense of uh, inadequacy, insufficiency, neediness. But we often don't recognize that and just think, if I had this thing, then I'm whole again. So the whole essence of desire is separation, insufficiency. While metta is just the opposite. Metta is actually the clear connection without judgment, without creating limitation, without creating separation. Just a simple example how desire really disturbs our essential completion, our essential peace, but we get sidetracked by it. Metta recognizes things as they are, a sense of friendliness, a sense of connectedness, a sense of no problem, really. Like if you've ever been on an airplane, I'm on airplanes a lot, on an overnight flight, and I remember this one flight I was on in the middle row, and there's about five minutes before the doors closed, and I suddenly noticed no one was sitting in the rest of the row. And I had just been sitting there quite peacefully, no problem, no wanting, no aversion, just at ease, until I noticed that. And the pleasant thought of maybe I could lie down arose and was clung to. And in that, what had been quite peaceful, I got really antsy, anxious, nervous. Everybody that walked in the plane, you know, I was really focused on them, and I wasn't with Meta, I can tell you that, <laughs> until they walked past my aisle, and then, ah, oh, may you be happy, you know. <laughs> and so what had essentially been a very peaceful situation became one where each person was evaluated, judged as my enemy, as a threat, until they passed, and they were okay. I was really... At least I was noticing this as it happened. That's about all I can take credit for. But that it was, it was a really uncomfortable state. And contrast that to this state before where I'm just sitting there and when people come in, it's just me, just them, no problem. Me as I am, they as they are. Nothing needs to change. Nothing needs to happen. We're just right here. It's quite a sense of peace and connectedness. That's the difference between metta and clinging. So when looked at it that way, you think, how could we confuse them, you know? Metta is a divine abode, you know, when we talk about the four Brahma-viharas, metta, um, compassion or karuna, sympathetic or empathetic joy, appreciative joy, and um, equanimity. Divine abodes, you know, limitless, boundless. Well, I'll tell you, the state of desire is no divine abode. And I think that's one thing we can really discover for ourselves, you know, in the next two hours, you know. So how do we get confused? Because we do. We really is fascinating, if you can take the personal out of it. It's fascinating to explore in your metta practice that shifting sands between the sense of friendliness, connectedness, into subtle wanting, into blatant wanting, you know. 
One thing is that craving, clinging, wanting as a habit arises as a result of connection with pleasant experience, right? When we're not paying attention and it's really pleasant, the habit of our mind is to want more or hold on to it or keep it going. And in the practice of metta, to begin with, we're saying deliberately focus on the good, on the beautiful in someone. So even if you're not feeling anything you would remotely describe as metta, that doesn't mean you're not experiencing metta, but you're not, feel, you're not like feeling some huge upwash of beautiful, pleasant energy, but you're still focusing on the good in someone, it's very easy for that pleasantness, when we don't quite notice it in a moment, for clinging and craving to start coming up. A simple example. I noticed on one retreat when I was with the friend category, and I'd be sending metta to her, and this is a pretty happy person, and so I'd be feeling happy, I'd be feeling, yeah, she's really nice, you know, having that. Gee, she's, she's so great, why don't we see each other more? That would be really nice to see her more. Before I knew it, I was into a whole story about when we could get together and how we could see each other, and maybe I'd go call her. And, and uh, oh, that's not metta. That's wanting. And that was relatively easy to notice. Sometimes it would move from that, from one pleasant thought into another pleasant thought into another pleasant fantasy. We don't really pick it up. And suddenly we're into full-blown attack of wanting, where it's really the hindrance, you know, of sense desire. Nothing to do with a dear friend. Nothing to do with anything. You could remotely call the metta practice, but we're just gripped, you know. How did I get here? I was so diligently sending loving kindness to the benefactor, and here I am, off in Bali, you know, skin diving. How did that happen? (laughs) So, of course, there's nothing to judge or get upset about it. It's, it's, it's interesting. So that when you notice, say, when I noticed, oh, I'm off at how am I going to get to see her? Rather than going, oh, no, get back to the metta. Just for a moment, notice the wanting. Ah, oh, you know, that leaning forward, the tightness, the sense of neediness, however you're experiencing it, so that we really recognize that it's not metta. I mean, we really learn to recognize it. And then not with any harshness, okay, you know, put it down, gently come back and refocus. You know, in that case, I refocused on the friend and I came back and just simply offered the next phrase as a gift, you know. So it's the starting over, over and over, but noticing the difference. And then you start to notice sooner, you'll, you'll think you're in uh, the metta and you've just a little bit slid into wanting, but you'll pick it up sooner, because it really is a different experience. So when there's the wanting as the hindrance, when it's just full-blown, eventually you'll notice that. You're just wanting, you know, a different seat, you're wanting different food, you're wanting different weather, you're wanting different people sitting next to you. It's really, that's the classic hindrance that we talk about in the first days of a retreat. With that, it's just sort of notice it, really notice it, name it, recognize it without judging. You can take what I call a few minutes of a vipassana break, a mindfulness break. If it's really strong, just bring your mindfulness to your body and your breath and just be with that feeling of wanting so that you're not like pretending 
this elephant in the closet isn't there and in some tiny little voice saying, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, and really you're you know, filled with lust or something. It's like, just, this is what's happening, let's just feel it for a moment. And then from within that, you can reconnect with the, the next phrase, with the intention of loving kindness. There's a couple of uh, specific ways, particularly in the metta practice, that are a bit more subtle than this, than what I just said, sort of more like what it was with my friend, where the metta gets a little co-opted by the wanting, where the wanting really is masquerading as metta. This came up in, in, I think, in both the groups today, but particularly in one of them that we were talking about. There's ways, one way is that uh, we are doing our practice very diligently, repeating the phrases, but subtly or not so subtly, we, our motivating force is really wanting the meta-feeling. You know? And this is, this, I mean, it's pretty hard not to fall into this sometimes. We really want some kind of good feeling. I mean, why the heck would we be here if we didn't? You know? I didn't come here to feel nothing and say this for seven days. Of course we want some meta-feeling. We just need to recognize it and realize that's not the meta practice to be sitting there going, may I be happy? Do I feel it yet? May you know. <laughs> so if you notice that happening, oh, maybe this is wanting. Recognize it. Come back. Or we get into wanting concentration. And there's a way with both of these, you know, it's almost as if after every phrase or after every set of phrases we're, we're subtly checking back. Am I more concentrated than before? Do I feel it a little more than before? Do I feel a little more connected than before? And if you start to feel that you're leaning forward, you know, that's often a sign. If there is a nice feeling, which sometimes comes, you'll know that you got into wanting rather than just being with the meta feeling because when it goes and you're really frustrated, that's always a sign that we were really into the wanting. You know, not, none of this is with judging. This is to just see what's what, to see where we suffer. And metta, that just that simple connectedness, no feeling, it doesn't matter, but metta is not about suffering. It can connect with suffering. It's not about hiding suffering. But when we're really in that connected, present moment of metta, it's not going to cause us suffering. Wanting, expectation, ambition, holding on is going to cause us suffering. And all we have to do is just keep noticing to see the difference. One other way that is is subtle, and at some point pretty much most of us get into it in the metta, is in saying the phrases, um, whether it's to ourselves or to the other, There's a a subtle kind of, we're not just saying the phrase as an offering of the heart. We're wanting something to change, you know. I really want that person to be happy. Uh, It often comes up with, you know, may may you have physical happiness or may you be healthy. And if the person isn't so healthy, you often notice that dichotomy more easily. But it's quite easy to slip in. In one sitting, you can kind of go back and forth between just the simple intention and suddenly leaning but. You know, if you just did this, you would be happy, you know? (laughs) Or for ourselves, of course, you know, may I be happy, may I be happy, may I be happy. And so it's just to notice when it's moved from the simple intention 
of well-wishing, the simple intention of friendliness to wanting some result. It's also common if you've spent, you know, a few days on the benefactor, your friend. People often want to go home and see if they noticed anything, you know, if they're feeling better, if they're feeling more happy, you know. Just notice, of course, we're interested, but don't be doing it for that because it gets into the wanting. So these are some of the ways, especially in the metta, that the near enemy can masquerade. But as soon as you notice it, it's no big deal. It's so obvious once you notice it that we wondered how it masqueraded until the next time. (laughs) The The far enemy... Well, that's more obvious, you know, the far enemy because it's, it's more obvious opposite. Aversion, ill will, all the gradations of that, including fear. But again, and this is sometimes not what people expect when they begin a metta practice, is that because ill will, fear, really are obstacles to the perception of our true being, and they are kind of the opposite of metta, it's quite common that they begin to come up rather strongly at various periods in our loving-kindness practice. And often, of course, the person experiencing it interprets that as they're blowing it in some way, you know, Um, and you're not. It's uh, an almost inevitable part of an intensive loving-kindness practice. If there are habits in our psyche of fear or ill will or irritation, and I suppose it's a rare being who doesn't have some habits of those, they're going to arise, you know? And so, again, our challenge, our practice, is not to get caught in hating them or blaming ourselves, or going into a real downward spiral of self-judgment. And this is really common on, on all retreats, really. But metta, sometimes it seems highlighted, where sending loving kindness to oneself and encountering, you know, the endless list of what's wrong with us and the inability to really feel loving just proves what we always had suspected. You know, I don't need to say more. And from that... Every unpleasant experience is further proof. So I think it's helpful to just take a moment to, as as we did with clinging, to see how it's experienced. In the moment, to have a sense of what ill will or aversion, how it really functions or fear. In the moment. Uh, We're not talking about our big psychic patterns, but just how it arises in the moment to begin with. And again, just as clinging or craving arises when we come in contact with something pleasant and we're not particularly paying attention, when some unpleasant thing, a sight or a sound or or a thought, you know, or a physical sensation in our body, like we're sleepy, it's physically unpleasant. And that unpleasant experience, when we're not particularly noticing gives rise to aversion or fear. And what is that? It's a pulling away. So that in that moment, it's a disconnect from the reality of the simplicity of that moment's experience. 
Ill will or anger is sort of like, no, lashing out, get away. Fear is more like pulling back, retreating. But it's a disconnect energetically. And if you tune in, say you have a pain in your knee and you notice aversion to it, you can almost feel as if your attention pulls back like that. Sometimes our whole body pulls back like that. And, of course, because of that, we're not going to see clearly what's actually happening in that moment because we're not connected. And that is the moment. (gasps) Sleepiness. It's unpleasant. We pull back. That moment of disconnection, that space, is all that our patterns of mind need to run in and go, yeah, you are sleepy. You are really hopeless. You, you know, really slept for a week before you came here so you wouldn't be sleepy. And here you are sleepy, and that just proves, you know, and there you are, back on the downward spiral. And if we don't recognize, oh, this is just aversion arising, or fear, you know, we project it into the future. I'm sleepy now, I've been sleepy the last sitting that goes to follow that for every sitting from now on I'm going to be sleepy and it's unbearable. There's no way I can do it. And then again, the spiral starts. And the more that, it's as if we're wearing, you know, colored glasses somehow. And every experience that arises, once we start to fall into whatever pattern of negativity is our common one, whether it's judging ourselves, hating ourselves, fearing the future, getting angry at everyone else, whatever our particular story is. Once we start believing it and not recognizing it as aversion, we get farther and farther afield from the reality of what's going on in this moment. And the each moment of fear, aversion, negativity just kind of feeds the next, you know, and it just... So that I've I've learned to recognize when a worthlessness pattern is going in my mind. Any perception that comes up, a sight, a sound, when that worthlessness pattern is really strong, is interpreted in such a way that it's true that I'm worthless. I mean, it could be anything. And it gets to be funny when I notice it. Like, say, I could come down, a little example, I could come down the stairs outside, and, you know, those row of... Uh, those row of um, clips where you put notes. I'm not saying this because we don't want notes. None of us are saying, oh, I wish we had notes. Usually I look and go, oh, good, no notes. That means everyone's fine. That's like a normal response, right? When worthlessness is on, I'll come down, there's no notes. I'll look and go, oh, my God, nobody likes me because I'm useless. (laughs) That level. And when I see that, I can just laugh, you know? It's just, oh, that's just what it does. But when we don't see it, That's another unpleasant experience that we didn't recognize. We pull back, and we're completely disconnected from reality in not much time. And we wonder, you know, how could anyone? We look and go, I'm not that bad of a person. How come I feel like this about myself, you know? So this is where metta, with any unpleasant experience, it doesn't have to be turned in on ourselves, but that's a big way that the hindrance of ill will arises in a metta retreat. But it could be kind of the lashing out where you're just hating everybody who comes into your field of vision or your field of hearing, you know, or the weather, or maybe you just picked one pet peeve, you know, but it's really taking over. I notice when I'm on a retreat and I suddenly have to write a note to the cooks for the good of all beings 
and they need to hear it. They really, you know, I, I start paying attention to the quality of energy that's convincing me I need to write the note. And now I know enough to say, okay, that means you don't write that note for three days. Because by that time, of course, the urgency is gone because it was just the hindrance of ill will. But anyway. <laughs> this one you could pay attention to. <laughs> if you urgently have to write a note to the maintenance people or you know, the snow shovelers or something, you know you have a brilliant idea for how the place could run better, why don't you wait till the end of the retreat and see if it still feels so brilliant? And maybe it is brilliant, but then it'll still be brilliant, you know, at the end of the retreat. This metta really is the antidote for fear and ill will. Now, the mind of ill will, and I can say this from experience, doesn't want to hear that or doesn't believe it. And often, uh, and I've been guilty of it myself, you know, that when, when, I don't know, one is sort of comfortable in a kind of negative way of looking at things, or it's just the strong habit of mind, it will come up when you do metta, so metta is difficult at that time. And that's when you'll hear yourself. I've heard myself, I've heard a lot of people say, I hate metta. <laughs> I hate practicing metta, you know. I'm not going to do it. And that's because it's going against this strong pattern. But we often have, and again, it's this, this kind of habit of ill will speaking, a mistaken concepts about how metta is the antidote to ill will. And this is, is often what the resistance, the intellectual resistance is about. That we think, um, I think Sharon alluded to the other night, when we think of metta as being stupid, you know. Oh, I see these really um, difficult, painful, horrible things in myself. But I'll just say, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, and as if, you know, just covering it over or suppressing it or pretending it's not there. You know, or in somebody else, it's even more. You know, they have this really harmful thing that they do, and I'm just going to say, may you be happy, may you live with ease, you know, and completely ignore that. That's stupid. That's naive. But that's not metta. But that's what we often think it is, just a covering it over. Or the other thing that um, sometimes we can quite fall into is almost the opposite of thinking that I have to really love that person. I have to love their stupidity. I have to love my pettiness. You know, really, you're, you're wonderful and so is your pettiness, you know. And that doesn't seem realistic either. So we're kind of in a quandary. That's not metta. Metta is simply clear-eyed and clear-heartedly with the attention connecting with what's happening without judgment, without expectation. Just connecting. You don't have to love it. You don't have to think anything about it. In fact, don't think anything about it. Just connect. It's from Ajahn Sumedho. He's a, you know who Ajahn Sumedho is? He's an American man who uh, ordained as a Buddhist monk in Thailand with Ajahn Chah, who was quite a well-known, famous um, forest monk and meditation teacher. So Ajahn Sumedho's been a monk about 30 years, and he lives in England now, and he's the head of the whole Western order of um, Buddhist monks and nuns in this tradition. And he's talking about metta. He's very, he's very kind of down-to-earth and simple in the way he describes things. 
says metta does not necessarily mean liking anything at all. It means an attitude of not dwelling on the unpleasantness or faults of any situation inside or outside of oneself. Now with metta, one isn't blinding oneself with an ideal. Instead, one is witnessing the unpleasantness in a situation, in a thing, a person, or oneself. You're witnessing the unpleasantness without creating anything around it. I love that. Just witnessing, connecting with the unpleasantness, and you don't create anything around it. Just let it be in the light of awareness. You simply don't get into thinking, I hate it, I hate it, I don't want it. This is metta. I'm not saying that's easy, but doesn't that seem a lot more doable than loving everything that's really hard? It's the power of non-judging, unlimiting, kind attention. That's really what metta is. It's so much more simple and so much more powerful than our ideals about it might have us believe. So really, whether it's a pleasant experience or an unpleasant experience or neutral, it doesn't matter. This is really where metta leads into wisdom, the attitude, the connectedness of heart, of attention, of mind, of metta, automatically opens into wisdom. And this is something I didn't really believe until I'd practiced it quite intensively, but it it seems to. So when we allow, as Sumedha was saying, just that connecting with the unpleasantness or the pleasantness, don't create anything around the pleasantness either, such as, isn't this wonderful, isn't this great, how can I have more? Just what it is. When we really allow that, the inclusiveness which we would call metta, that sense of acceptance, that sense of all-inclusiveness, that sense of limitlessness, naturally arises. It's not that we have to try to feel inclusive about that person, this aspect of myself, that experience, but simply by steady, connected, non-judging attention in various ways, the connectedness, the inclusiveness, the lack of limits becomes apparent. Let me read you this poem that I really like. To me, it really expresses this, the, the willingness to come back and meet with unflinching kind eyes, something that's a little difficult or unpleasant, and it opens into connectedness. By Mary Oliver, it's called Singapore. In Singapore, in the airport, A darkness was ripped from my eyes. In the women's restroom, one compartment stood open. A woman knelt there washing something in the white bowl. Disgust argued in my stomach, and I felt in my pocket for my ticket. A poem should always have birds in it. (laughs) Like, let me out of here, right? Kingfishers say, with their bold eyes and gaudy wings, rivers are pleasant, and of course, trees, a waterfall, or if that's not possible, a fountain rising and falling. A person wants to stand in a happy place in the poem. When the woman turned, I could not answer her face. Her beauty and her embarrassment struggled together, and neither could win. She smiled, and I smiled. What kind of nonsense is this? 
Everybody needs a job. Yes, a person wants to stand in a happy place in a poem, but first we must watch her as she stares down at her labor, which is dull enough. She's washing the tops of airport ashtrays, as big as hubcaps, with a blue rag. Her small hands turn the metal, scrubbing and rinsing. She does not work slowly nor quickly, but like a river. Her dark hair is like the wing of a bird. I don't doubt for a moment that she loves her life. And I want her to rise up from the crust and the slop and fly down to the river. This probably won't happen. But maybe it will. If the world were only pain and logic, who would want it? Of course it isn't. And neither do I mean anything miraculous. But only the light that can shine out of a life. I mean the way she unfolded and refolded the blue cloth. The way her smile was only for my sake. I mean the way this poem is filled with trees and birds. It's so much more simple and so much more vast and powerful than anything our complicated minds could make up. And we just really need the willingness, the faith really, to, to trust enough to just keep practicing and not be discouraged, you know, when we're caught in wanting, when we're caught in aversion, when we're caught in complete boredom because nothing is happening. We don't know. It's so much vaster than we can know, you know. So just really an urge to keep going. And I need to mention the other three hindrances. Oh, first I just wanted to say that sometimes people feel that they feel a strong urge to to stay with themselves as they're practicing the metta, to stay more with themselves than going through all the categories as quickly as we are, which is fine, but it's common to feel that it's somehow wrong or selfish or greedy, right? We should be sending it out to all beings, you know, and here I am just sending it to myself. Don't believe it. Don't believe it. Because, again, just like in that poem, you know, if you can really touch your own experience with loving kindness, it expands outward, past the limits, you know. It doesn't stop at some made-up idea of this edge of my body, you know, and everything out there is separate. So please trust to keep going if you feel to send it to yourself. And you'll see that ultimately... The, uh, the, again, the illusion of separation begins to break away, and even against all your best efforts, you'll find metta leaking out to other people, <laughs> even when you didn't intend it. Oh, and, and in one of the groups, I, I mentioned that sometimes we use the phrase, if you're having trouble connecting with phrases to yourself, or it feels like too much wanting, a phrase somewhere along the lines of I love and accept myself just as I am rather than trying to make yourself feel something different. Okay, the other three hindrances, just to mention, sloth and torpor or sleepiness, restlessness and agitation, so that physical restlessness, you just can't sit still, and obsessive worrying spinning in the mind and doubt, 
Just as in a Vipassana retreat, they arise, and sometimes very strongly in a metta retreat. One thing that I noticed, because of the nature of metta as this form of practice, of a concentration practice, where we're not investigating so much other things that arise. You know, you notice you're thinking, you go, oh, and you come back to the phrases. You don't necessarily name what's happening at first if you can just come back. And so sometimes that's fine. So there's a little anger, a little restlessness. You notice it, you come back to the phrase, and it's gone fine. But sometimes, because we didn't notice, all of a sudden it wallops us over the side of the head. You know, and you'll just be in a frenzy of doubt, for example, and not know how you got there. So that's just, just to, if that happens to you, you're not doing something wrong. And as soon as you can recognize it, recognize it. That's the main thing. With sleepiness, again, because it's a concentration practice, in other words, we're just coming back over and over to the object or focus of the metaphrases of the person we're sending it to, That concentration is one of the calming factors of mind. Investigation, which we're not doing as much, is more energizing. And so in the early days of a concentration practice, you can be really right there with your phrases, feeling quite connected, and the next thing you know, you're nodding off. And you don't quite know how that happened, you know. And it's just because the the calm and the concentration got, got stronger than the energy. That's all. No big thing. So when you notice that, do the usual things. One is to really aim more clearly at each word in the phrase. That action of aiming, called vitaka in in Pali, is actually the mental antidote to sloth and torpor. So it's kind of, it's not hitting it with a sledgehammer. It's just gently aiming. May I be free from danger. That's the way I say that one. You know, just that little extra energy can sometimes wake us up, balance the concentration, and you're back in business. Sometimes, of course, that's too far gone, so the usual things. Open your eyes, look at the light, stand up. Sometimes changing the speed of the phrases can help you refocus. If they've gotten into a lullaby modality, you know, (laughs) and you're singing yourself to sleep. You might want to just vary the speed and how you're saying the phrases. But really important not to get into judging about this, you know. It's just a natural effect of the practice at times for everyone. The opposite, restlessness and worry, again, recognizable, too much energy, not enough calming, not enough concentration or focus to balance it. And sometimes you feel like you need to walk more, just kind of walk off the energy. One way um, we sometimes don't recognize restlessness, and I think I said something about this in the hall, in the metta, is that we find ourselves ceaselessly tinkering with the phrases or with which person to send it to, you know, so if you find you have 17 phrases, or your phrases have become paragraphs, or you're changing them all the time, every saying, well, that doesn't feel right anymore, let's try this, or you've been through 35 different friends, I would, I would at least suspect there could be some restlessness. And if you can name it as restlessness, rather than thinking, oh, the meta hasn't clicked yet, that can be really helpful. <laughs> oh, restlessness, Okay simplify. When you feel restless, don't complicate. Simplify. 
Go back to only four phrases or cut down to two phrases. Go back to only one friend, you know, and just stay very steady, very simple on the phrases. And doubt, of course, is very interesting. We, we know how to recognize it when it's just this, I can't do this, this is stupid. I mean, we're used to that, I assume, if you've done meditation practice before. One interesting way, if you're new to metta, but you're used to practicing vipassana, doubt can really take the form of criticizing and analyzing the metta practice and comparing it to vipassana. Well, what about mindfulness? What about wisdom? What's the point of this I and you? I thought there was no self, and here we're going, may I be happy, may you be happy. I mean, all we're, you know, all we're doing is reinforcing, and you're thinking about you know, all the precepts, all the things you learned from the, the mindfulness retreats, and how metta is just the opposite, and you're completely lost in thought, thinking that you know, we're analyzing the practice. This is major doubt. And it's very, very, very helpful to notice it and name it. You'll never think your way here into deciding which is better, mindfulness or metta, or am I doing it right, or is metta really emphasizing a sense of separation by these use of these words, you know. Thinking will never get you there. And so, as with any doubt, to recognize the hindrance of doubt is just this spinning in the mind. The recognition of it is, oh, okay, that's doubt. You put it down, and you simply connect your attention. That's the antidote, connected attention. So you come back to the phrase, and it's sort of like, okay, just do it. We're not giving up our discriminating wisdom here. It's not that you know, we're just blindly, for the rest of our lives, believe anything that's said. But it's in you know, that famous sutta where the Buddha said, don't believe it just because I tell you, but try it and see for yourself. Well, that second line, that's really important. Try it and see for yourself. And as long as we're spinning in doubt, we can't try anything because we'll never do it. So you have to, oh, doubt, okay, just do it. And at the end of the retreat, definitely evaluate, you know, see what your experience is. Of course you'll evaluate, see if it's useful, see if it's true for you. No question about that. But it's impossible in the middle of it. We're just in doubt. So noticing, not judging it, but having the, the commitment to try the practice, oh, that's doubt, recognize it, center in your body again, and then just start by focusing on the next phrase. And you might notice, I've noticed, that doubt rarely comes up when you like what's happening. It often comes up when what's happening isn't meeting your expectations. So that's just, just a little piece that you might not completely believe the doubt next time it comes. One of my favorite lines from the Buddha is, what the mind dwells upon frequently, towards that it will naturally incline. That's actually, I think, a very deep statement. So what we're doing here, each moment that we are planting that seed of intention, of friendliness, of connectedness, of loving-kindness, each moment that we actually say the phrase, in that moment, that's what we're dwelling upon. And if you think about what our mind dwells upon, left to its own devices, 
what it naturally inclines towards, left to its own devices. I don't know about your minds, but I can tell you in my mind, it's not a pretty picture. And to really have the sense that we are affecting a change as to where the heart, the mind, will naturally incline through this practice. We really are. And so that helps me enormously in those dry times when it seems like nothing's going on. But if I can just summon up the willingness to offer the next phrase, it's a very powerful act of kindness, of wisdom, and of really coming out of our dream of separation, of fear and neediness. So let's sit quietly for a moment. 